Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 22 of The Pick List. Tell me what you've been up to this week. Hello, Laura. Yes, I've been doing quite a bit of online training again, running some virtual courses and workshops on writing skills and opinion writing in particular. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been up to Global Meat Alliance this week. Uh, We've got a new website, globalmeatalliance.org. So anyone in the meat world that wants to have a nosy at that, please do. So uh, yeah, really excited to have that launched. Uh, We've got a fantastic show this week as well, haven't we? We have, and we're joined by Rod Addy. Rod is editor of Food Manufacture magazine, a major trade publication covering food manufacturing, as you would imagine from the title. He's got a really great perspective on what's happening within the food industry and brought some really interesting articles for us to discuss as well. Shall we start the show? Rod, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do and how you're connected to the food industry? So my name is Rod Addy and I'm editor of a trade publication called Food Manufacture, uh, which covers uh, food and drink processing, every category of food and drink uh, across the UK. Um, So yeah. Fantastic. And you've brought some really interesting, uh, quite colourful articles for us to discuss um, as well. So we're really excited to talk to you about those. Why don't you tell us about the first article you've picked for us? Uh, So the first one um, has appeared in a few publications, but I I picked up on the uh, Manchester Evening News uh, a couple of days ago, um, was on Burger King asking uh, people to eat at McDonald's during lockdown. and uh, I think there are several sort of interesting things about this, really. I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, from a, with my cynical hat on, what what a great element, you know, what a great approach to PR to actually to actually come out uh, and encourage customers to eat a, a potential rival, um, really kind of winning over the um, the moral high ground there. I think in um, in in kind of PR terms, uh, so so stroke of genius and cutting totally against um, you know the competitive mindset. I guess that's out there a lot of times in the industry. Uh, so that's that's the first thing that I was thinking. Um, the the second thing that I thought, and maybe kind of leave, leaving to a certain extent, leaving the cynical hat um, to one side. I mean, clearly a sign of the times. Um, you know that we have now a situation where we're going into a second uh, lockdown in England. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody needs to support everybody else through it, really. Um, we, we all need to kind of pull together. And, and I think at this stage, you know, th- there is a sense in which a lot of the traditional views around competition uh, and non-collaboration um, are, are having to be put on one side. Um, that said, if you look a little bit deeper, and of course I, you know, I 
I, I, I can't confirm or deny this, but um, certainly if you look at the suppliers to both Burger King and McDonald's, um, they, they have uh, a lot of suppliers in common. And the message is going out, I think, also beyond the UK, um, as far as this is concerned. And again, I think that's that's an even bigger signifier of exactly what's at stake here, because um, this is the story of the suppliers behind these outlets who are also finding it pretty tough even the bigger players in terms of the impact on sales um, that they are suffering, uh, certainly on the food service side. What do you think the message these suppliers are taking from from a campaign like that? Um, well, I, I, I think on the one hand, the message is, you know, is, is very supportive because clearly if they're supplying both outlets, um, that there's a sense in which... Um, you know, actually, this is all filtering back to you, and we're we are supporting you as your customer. Really, I mean, obviously, it's not putting those terms to the consumer because the consumer isn't aware of all these aspects. But, um, but certainly, you know, from from the supplier perspective as well, I I think it shows a certain amount of um, uh, you know, of support, uh, really, and a, and a, and a desire to kind of um, you know, to to show a sense of solidarity. Yeah, totally. And and I thought I really liked or what I really liked about this campaign and, and the article that sort of explains some of the, the rationale behind the campaign as well is, as you said, that that spirit of, of collaboration, that sense that these are such extraordinary times and particularly that out of home sector obviously being hit incredibly hard by this second uh, lockdown in England, that you do need the supply chain to come together. We did hear a lot of that during the first lockdown, didn't we? Is mm. your sense from, from what you're seeing in, in the industry, are people, is, is that spirit of collaboration still there? Do people, are people going into that second lockdown with the same intentions? and Or is there a little bit of, of, of fatigue that's set in as well? Well, I think, of course, there's fatigue because I think there's fatigue in the general populace as well at this point. Um, you know, it, it is really becoming a, a long, slow grind now. Um, uh, but but I think, if anything, the, 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 the urge to work together is even greater than it was before because what's at stake is even greater. The pressure is increasing all the time. Um, and we're at a stage in the year where... <laughs> You know, as, as 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 a few people have said, it's 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 the perfect storm. We've got Christmas coming up. Um, we then go into the end of the Brexit transition period, um, and there's so much uncertainty around um, the Brexit transition period, but also um, to a certain extent around Christmas because you we we've never approached a Christmas like this before. We've never approached a Christmas in the build-up where you know shopping trends are so unpredictable. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's, there is a huge amount of uncertainty and, and again, such a hit on the food service and the hospitality side that, um, you know, that, 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 that sense of pressure really requires people to work together and behind the scenes, you know, that there are, you know, there've obviously been groups that have been formed, um, of, you know, a lot of the top suppliers and bosses of the top suppliers working with government, um, to try and, um, respond uh, as soon as they know more about the situation i mean that of course brings in the area of how much um, the government can help given the state of things particularly with regard to brexit the situation at the moment but you know um at, at least there is uh, i think an intense move uh, around top suppliers top competing suppliers 
um, to, to share information and to support as much as possible where they can know anything at all. I think you're totally right, Rodden. That whole we're in it together and supportive industry, we've seen more and more over the last few months. Um, and and I, I love the fact that you picked this article because a couple of days ago when it was re- uh, the advert was released, you just had to open LinkedIn and it was almost every single post on LinkedIn. So the That's amount it. of uh, the amount of social media coverage it's had, uh, both to consumers and trades, been phenomenal. And it, what it's triggered in my mind, it's a bit like the tone of voice that KFC had, wasn't it, when they had logistical problems getting chicken to to their restaurants um that, that some someone somewhere's had that brave agency conversation of right we want to have this advert what do you think uh and and someone's made that call and the, maybe the pace that they made that call just looking at the the mcdonald's social feeds this afternoon i can't see a response yet from them and mm. you know the, the likes of greg's and others albeit smaller businesses are pacier with social media and having that yeah. banter about, you know, with Piers Morgan about vegan sausage rolls or whatever it may be. And I think that's where McDonald's has an opportunity to step in and marry that tone of voice. But invariably, as we know, a huge uh, multinational like that, it'll have gone up the chain, it'll have gone into several agencies and there'll be a, a lot of conversations deciding uh, what exactly we're going to say. Uh, yes, so, absolutely. Yeah, brave of Burger King and I, and, I, and I like it it'll be interesting to see how that pans out over the next couple of days and, and if others do jump in and try and look as supportive to the outside world yeah and indeed how it influences other campaigns going forward you know maybe, maybe it'll be a breath of fresh air that will, will will lead to other similar campaigns yeah Julia what's your first article this week So my first pick this week is an article called The Secret Life of Shopping Lists, and it was published on LinkedIn by Brian Roberts. If you are in grocery retail, you will probably know Brian. He was an analyst at Kantar for several years and then worked at TCC Global, the loyalty company. At the start of 2020, Brian lost his job, and when the pandemic hit soon after, and the supermarkets were recruiting like crazy and looking for staff to help feed the nation, he, like many others, decided to take a job um, at a local supermarket, in his case, um, Tesco. And so he's been working in various shop floor roles since, and sharing what he's observed and learned about shopper behaviour from the ground during that period on his social media. Um, And of course, because he has that background as a retail analyst, the perspective he's able to bring to that is absolutely fascinating. It's rare for someone to be able to combine shop floor experience with strategic insight. Um, He also happens to be a very good writer. I commissioned him several times when I was at the grocer. I always felt he was great at spotting interesting angles and write in a way that's really engaging. So this particular piece that he's uh, written uh, on LinkedIn revolves around shopping lists. While on trolley duty at Tesco, Brian has been spotting all sorts of shopping lists that have been left behind in those trolleys. And he basically started taking photos of them and posted them on Twitter. To date, he's collected about 80 of them. And so he decided to write a longer piece about um, about those lists, looking at patterns and trends and just raising some interesting questions about what these shopping lists reveal about how we shop. 
So what did he find? Well, some really interesting stuff generally around how people um, write their lists and what they write them on. Some of the examples are fairly uh, exotic kitchen towel, old bills, sheet music, um, all feature in his uh, in his collection. Um, there's some really interesting variety in how people structure their shopping lists. So um, some will just list items randomly. Others group them together by category, others in the order that they are clearly merchandised in store. Um, he also found a really interesting mix of sort of very specific items, such as, I don't know, green peppers or baked beans, but then also some more general reminders, you know, things like dinner for Tuesday or snacks for the kids, which indicate that, you know, there's, there's a lot of scope there still for spontaneous decisions to be made in store, even if you are using a shopping list. The final thing that I wanted to point out um, of the piece that I thought was particularly interesting um, was the lack of brands that Brian talks about. The overwhelming majority of the items on these shopping lists are listed generically, not by brand name, even in categories where there's a big brand leader. So you will see typically mayonnaise and ketchup, not Hellman's and Heinz on, on these shopping lists. Where brands are mentioned, they tend to be reasonably niche items. So he found some specific brand mentions around denture adhesives, for instance, or indigestion relief, things like that. Um, there's every chance, of course, and, and Brian, Brian points that out in his article, that the consumer still ends up buying those big brands, even though they're just using generic terms in their shopping lists. But he still thinks it's something that you, you'd probably be a little bit concerned about um, as, a, as a brand marketer, that, that lack of, of specific brands on those lists. But all in all, I thought just a fantastic article that's really worth reading, not least because it will make you look, it will make you look at your own shopping lists and your own shopping habits um, in, in a new light. What, what did you make of it? And, and tell us about your own shopping list habits. Yes. Well, first of all, um, I'm a fairly traditional shopper. Um, I think there's some evidence, and, and in, indeed, um, I think it's included in that article, that there's some evidence that people have become more traditional since um, coronavirus set in and lockdown set in, in some ways, um, that there's a big weekly shop that they do. Um, it used to be the case where, where this was sort of broken up over the week and people would sort of have two or three different visits, maybe to multiple outlets. But now I think there is a return seemingly to, um, you know, to, to, to a traditional kind of big shop. Um, and a lot of people, I think, are still doing that in a, you know, at a physical outlet rather than online. Um, uh, partly, I think, because of the initial problems that a lot of people encountered in terms of online availability. So, um, so yeah, a lot of people are doing traditional uh, weekly shops. I'm certainly one of them. I go to um, Tesco. I'm a, I don't I, I don't mind declaring my hand as far as that's concerned. Um, uh, there's a big Tesco just down the road from me, and um, I uh, I have to say that I write uh, write out on a uh, on a piece of paper that shopping list, um, and I will use a number of different kind of pieces, uh, bits of paper to do it really so yeah I recognize a lot of the paper that was described in the article so envelopes backs of envelopes um, uh, sometimes there'll be drawings that my three-year-old has done and I'll I'll take I'll take a piece of paper and write on the back of one of those um, even even shop receipts if they're blank on the other side I'll write on them and use them as a shopping list I mean I, I guess partly it's a sort of subconscious way of trying to avoid waste but um, 
trying to make as much use out of possible out, out of what I've got. Um, and I tend to I tend to group by because I I'm a regular visitor to that Tesco Tesco. I tend to group by um, the layout of the store. So I have I have the layout of the store in mind in my head. So I can completely identify with those people who when there's a store makeover and the the layout is changed suddenly they're all at sea they don't know where they are and i suspect if there is you know if and when that happens uh at my big tesco store i shall be uh, wandering aimlessly along the aisles <laughs> trying to make sense of my list in relation to uh to the order laura when you um when you looked at this piece with with your your marketeers um hat on how worried do you think brand marketers should be about the fact that most of these shopping lists use generic descriptors rather than brand specific um items yeah when i've i've, I've read the article twice because i thought it was a fantastic article um and it was probably something i wouldn't have come across normally so th thank you so much for bringing it to the show i think um if that list is for yourself and you're not giving it to a partner or a family member to go off and do that shop you probably defaulted in your mind knowing what your brand preference is so maybe that is just shorthand and i know it says in the article you catch up but maybe that is shorthanded for people that that is Heinz and they would know that and but if that's good list going to someone else then yeah that needs to have the brand on because there's always the danger the wrong thing may come back um i think i was really intrigued by the the article as well that it reminded the fact of um, meal repertoire and and i know he he quotes uh, five uh, around five uh, dishes that we generally cook and we just rotate around those and i know research says you know up to six or seven but what the opportunity is and what we're seeing on those lists is saturday night tea and tea for tuesday that actually there is an opportunity still to try and shake up what that meal repertoire may be and get something different in there that i and i think looking at those lists it shows that consumers are still wanting that inspiration they are still wanting something different the challenge is as we've spoken about before over the the last few months is shoppers are feeling like they're running the gauntlet of retail and don't want to spend the time on a gondola end thinking oh this is a different stir fry with a different uh, flavoring that i might be interested in the and if nothing else maybe that repertoire is even rationalizing at the moment because people just want to get in and out at pace but it gives me hope and um i think if i was a brand manager i, I would be a little bit worried but uh, I would be over the optimist thinking it's just a shorthand the northern eater pick up Heinz. Laura what's your first pick for us this week? Uh, my first pick is from BBC online and it's Walmart drops inventory robots from its stores um, and I picked this because I thought it was a really nice uh, look behind the scenes in terms of what they were trying to achieve with uh, some automation so for the last three years since 2017 uh, Walmart have had a partnership with a company called Bossa Nova Robotics and they've been supplying around 500 robots into their stores and these robots scan shelves to ensure all the stock and the price is accurate um, and one of the reasons for this obviously particularly in the US they're doing a lot more curbside collection and they need to know exactly what is in that store because they're not ordering from a big central distribution unit um, and they've taken them out of stores because they're going to use people instead and basically that the, the shorthand which it doesn't say exactly in the article but reading between the lines is 
it's not working as well as maybe people can in terms of checking that inventory and che checking the prices. It points out in the article that robots are still in store in some ways, but not in terms of in inventory checking, in terms of floor scrubbers. Again, another topic that we've previously picked up on the, on the pig list. And then um, it, it gives the... Um, the reflection back to Amazon and Alibaba and unsurprisingly as we know they're using a huge amount of robotics but they're in a different setting aren't they they're in huge warehouses and in 20, um, 2012 Amazon bought a, a robotics company and now it has almost quarter of a million robots in its warehouses it also talks in the article about Target and the fact that they're obviously a bricks and mortar operator and they're relying on people still rather than ro robots. And it just got me thinking really, you know, if you are in retail and you are in that, that grocery setting, do you want to be coming up to a robot in, in a store, you know, or are they just running overnight? Or how can these big retailers that are doing more and more online make sure that they're checking that inventory and picking things correctly when they're having to rely on people? What do you see, Rod, you know, particularly in the um, manufacturing sector? Are you seeing more automation and robotics coming in? And what's the grocery sector doing off the back of that? Well, I mean, it's a very, very interesting topic. For years, um, people have talked about automation <coughs> and robotics. But I think in, in, in reality, unless you're talking about the really big players, the, the majority of food manufacturers only have tended to focus on automation, uh, either the sort of beginning or ends of lines. So um, you know, things like palletizers, when when the product has been made and it it, 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 it it starts actually being put on a pallet and being wrapped up ready for delivery um, and that sort of thing. So, but beyond that, automation was, was a lot more limited than I think a lot of people would have liked. Um, but of late, we are seeing, I think, quite, an increase in the level of interest around automation for all kinds of reasons, partly actually because of the availability of people on the ground. Um, so uh, we're going into um, a period now where um, we've got uh, the immigration bill obviously going through and there are certain restrictions on um, uh, the workforce in 2021 uh, from outside the UK. Traditionally, food and drink manufacturing has relied quite heavily on um, migrant workers, particularly from Eastern European countries, uh, on the production side of things. Um, and that's becoming a lot harder to do now uh, for, for a variety of reasons, partly because of the, the um, ceiling um, or, the, or the, um, the lower limit, rather, of, of what's required in terms of wages uh, from, from people that you'd be recruiting that would be actually looking to live and work in the UK. Um, but I think also partly because people are seeing other opportunities elsewhere, there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. And so automation is seen as a kind of a way of, you know, being able to um, perhaps um, reduce the amount of workers in that area and increase them on the more skilled side. But of course, in introducing automation, you then bring in the issue that you need workers that are fairly skilled, that are, are going to be able to have to deal with the kind of technology that you will then have to deal with as automation increases. So I think I think that shifts the skills challenge away from just the kind of the lower production line and maybe the mid-tier roles, like the operations and the technical roles, um, looking at production and processing and towards much more kind of high-tech, 
use of software, um, manufacturing execution systems, and all that side of things. And that that will be one of the challenges going forward is availability of people that will be skilled in those areas, I think. But yeah, there's a, I, I've seen a distinct increase in terms of not just interest, but in terms of people actually investing in equipment um, that also, let's be frank, will make things more efficient and actually will cut costs to a certain extent as well, provided they're managed correctly, of course. And that's the other thing. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting piece and, and two things that stood out to me um, or that I, I took from the article. On the one hand, I think is is the fact that when we talk about automation and, and the potential it has for, for making certain operations much more efficient, is that of course it's not a silver bullet. And, and this is one of those examples where you have a big company trying out automation, deploying some of these robots, and then after several months realizing that actually these automation works really well in this particular part of our operations and it doesn't quite deliver um, in, in other parts. I think the, um, the the story was originally reported first in the Wall Street Journal and it's worth having a look at the Wall Street Journal um, piece because there's a little bit more in there around um, some of the ROI challenges that, that they were potentially um, looking at. The other thing that I that sort of stands out to me is that I think as you have more grocery retailers, more food manufacturers experimenting with this kind of um, technology, there is that sort of test and learn mindset that you need to have. And I think sometimes that can be quite challenging in an industry that's perhaps not as used to having to deal with these sort of quite tricky technology decisions where the reality is that you are going to try out quite a few things and then some of them um, will, will stand the test of time and, and will work out and, and others you basically go well that was an interesting uh, pilot and we learned a lot but ultimately we didn't uh, decide to progress with that so um, I think that's sometimes that that can be quite challenging I think internally but also from a corporate comms point of view that you're having to sort of manage the excitement of the original of, of the initial story that you know you're doing a cool thing with robots but then you're also having to sort of um, tell the story of how you're moving on from a particular test um, and, and, and trying out something else. Rod, what's your second pick for us? Um, so uh, this is kind of a lighthearted piece um, from The Guardian looking at cocktails um, and a, a, a kind of a, a different take on the um, what are your favorite cocktails? So it's five classic American cocktails to drink your way through election day, obviously referring to <laughs> The presidential election that some um, votes are still being counted for in the US as we speak. Um, and, um, uh, I, you know, I just think, uh, wow, where to start really, but without getting too much, I think kind of getting drawn into the politics of it. Um, I just thought it was a great, it, it was a great way to kind of present a really kind of tongue in cheek way to present several, um, several different co cocktails. Um, I love the, um, cocktails consumed depending on the uh, on how on how the voting and the and uh, on how the voting pans out so if biden wins in a landslide then it's a pina colada then if you've got uh you know trump snatches a quick victory they've got a drink called the four horsemen which i i have to say i wasn't familiar with i hadn't come across before but um now i have so uh that was a good one and um uh and then in the unlikely event of a tie the the hurricane as well uh, and everything that uh, can go wrong does go wrong with the uh, Long Island iced tea. 
Um, so, and it made me think actually, you know, on the wider level, whenever I read articles like this, it always makes, it makes me think cocktails are quite iconic, aren't they? They, in terms of the memory, they, they sort of can often take you back to a certain time and place. Um, and so whenever I read these sort of articles, I, I, I'm reminded when I read about a certain cocktail, it kind of makes me think, oh yeah, I remember, you know, summer in, I don't know, uh, the Canary Islands, that, that gives you some indication of where my, uh, holiday habits were in the early days of my, uh, holidaying um or you know or, or somewhere like that you know it's and, and and there's a whole kind of host of kind of experiences and memories that come along with that so uh just thought i just thought it was quite a fun article i, I loved it i thought you were going to say holidaying in Mo- monaco or something like that Rod, i was listening <laughs> to what you were going to say uh, my tastes I know, have just... never been that rich i do have to say <laughs> i've just written down on my notepad at uh, long island iced tea anything that could go wrong um it does go wrong because that's probably where we are at the moment at time of recording <laughs> yes um yes it's very close isn't it it's very it was very at the time of this recording it was very very close and of course um you know uh by the time this goes out we may know, may well know but um it's extraordinary times really i just think that you know that that um again this is this made me think uh you know i've never really been on tenterhooks for the results of a u.s election in quite in quite the way that i have um this time round. i mean th- th- this is the level of interest that i would have shown in an election for you know the leading party in the uk uh usually so um again it's just it just shows how 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 things have changed really in terms of politics in terms of communication over the last few years yeah, totally. And I think it's so interesting also just how often food and drink plays such a big role in these sort of pivotal events. I mean, I have to say, I did stay out for the election goers. I do like a good election. Um, so um, I I did not drink cocktails. That's clearly where I went wrong. Um, I would have quite fancied a, a pina colada in particular, not just because of the clear Biden victory that it represents. <laughs> I do also quite like a pina colada. But um, it's interesting when you had a look at, um, you know, various journalists, commentators, people were staying up to watch the election. On Twitter, lots of people were kind of tweeting pictures of their special election snacks. Um, you know, I think that quite a lot of thought had gone gone into that. And I think, yes, there's a sort of great playfulness around this. And, and this article, I think, is is, is really great. It's, it's really nicely written as well. There's some fantastic uh, colour in there. But it also, I think, once again, you, you have these sort of pivotal moments and you see people you turn to their favorite kind of comfort food and drink um to you know either celebrate these moments or just get them through through those moments and you know we're recording this on on the eve of 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 the uh, the, the second lockdown in in England um and you know we're about to talk about that a little bit later with with one of your picks Laura as well i think that sense of comfort and self-care and wellness that's sort of tied in with uh, with food and drink is I think is, is so important at the moment. Julia what's your second pick this week? So my second pick this week is from Sifted um, and it's an article titled Reinforcing Food Waste or Fighting It. Um, the article basically looks at the growing number of food waste startups and some interesting tension that started to appear in that sector. In particular, the founder of a food waste app called Karma has spoken out to say he wants to see more transparency and scrutiny of startups operating in this space. 
He worries there's a perception that just because you're a startup doing something about feed waste, everything you do is automatically great. Um, and he believes that isn't the case and there should be much more scrutiny around various strategies and approaches and business models involved in these uh, startups and apps. And the tensions that he is talking about or some of the um, potential controversy is around a particular type of startup that connects consumers with restaurants and retailers, typically through an app, so the consumers can basically save food that would otherwise go to waste by buying it at a massive discount. That is, in fact, what Karma does as well, but there are also other apps in the market, such as Too Good To Go, Rescue, and Your Local. And they're becoming very popular indeed. And the problem the team at Karma is worrying about is that these apps are such a great route to market for some restaurants and retailers now. They're so good at getting rid of any food waste that people in these businesses don't have any incentive to waste less. They don't have to plan more carefully. They don't have to do better forecasting. They just carry on as they've always done. And if there's surplus at the end of the day, they just get rid of it using this super convenient app. And, and so the question he is asking, uh, the, the guy who runs Karma, is essentially, you know, are these feed waste apps really challenging the status quo on feed waste here, or are they actually enabling uh, problematic behavior? Are they enabling waste? And I thought it was such a, an interesting question to raise. And it's particularly interesting to see how different startups in this space are responding to that challenge. Um, there are quite a few startups quoted in this particular article. And, you know, Karma obviously want to increasingly use their app and their technology to help businesses with demand forecasting. So they want to see businesses registered with their platforms sell less and less surplus food as time goes on. But then they also speak to people such as Too Good To Go, um, and they are basically saying, well, we're not actively looking for businesses to be selling less, but that it's often a side effect of using the app. Um, and they also say that any companies that use their platform just as a marketing tool or as a route to market, um, rather than as a way to reduce food waste, will also be kicked off the platform. So it's clearly an issue that's sort of starting to rise up uh, uh, the agenda with, within that startup community. It's still sort of, le reading the article leaves you feeling like there's quite a, a lot still to be resolved here in terms of which model ultimately is going to be most effective at reducing waste. What I found encouraging, though, was the fact that these kinds of conversations and debates are taking place um, because it shows that I think the debate on food waste is maturing, that we as consumers, but also as commentators and as businesses are becoming more demanding of anyone who's working in this area, that we're not just saying, well, just because you're doing something, anything around food waste, it's great, but that we're starting to ask some more probing questions. And Rod, I, I thought uh, it'd be so interesting to hear your perspective on this, because, of course, food waste reduction is a huge priority for so many manufacturers now. And some of these startups, I think, have done a fantastic job of really enabling these manufacturers to um, to do something about food waste. Are you sensing that they that debate about food waste is becoming more sophisticated within manufacturers as well are they looking at different models in a slightly more differentiated way um <clears throat> yes i think so um i th i think the um it'd be interesting to see how the consumer side does kind of drive uh, the rest of the side back up the chain um 
I, uh, uh, certainly food waste is a huge, huge issue for food manufacturers, um, you know, whatever the perceptions are. And, and, um, and, and, and they are, it is one of their key metrics, one of the key metrics that the big manufacturers will use in, in terms of um, how they deal with waste. Um, and, and most people clearly have a, you know, a, a zero waste to landfill approach um, now. Um, but, um, but then, you know, once you kind of drill down beyond that, there are various things that you can do. And depending on the manufacturer you are, some waste can, can be used for, for obviously animal feed. Um, uh, if it's uh, particularly if it's you know deemed not fit for human consumption, but certainly fit for for animal consumption. Um, so there's that route. There's also the route that we've seen quite a lot over the last few months, which is um, you know once once that uh, product goes out to retail and the, you know it's not sold, um, then you've got a bunch of charities that work in in terms of getting that product out to people that in need, people who are vulnerable. So Fair Share, for example, has done tremendous work over the last few months um, in in that area. Um, in terms of, of getting uh, getting product out to, to people who um, have hit hard times um, or are in difficult situations for, for, for one reason or another. Um, and what, one of the interesting things there actually is, is it, it then made me think, well, okay, so on the one hand, you've got food manufacturers who are actually trying to drive down waste. And the reason they're trying to drive down waste overall is because it's a key efficiency metric. Clearly, you want to do as much as possible with the raw material that you have. And if you can rework that raw material into more product, um, then, you know, there's no need for waste. Whereas if you do waste, then you lo you're losing out to a certain extent commercially in, in sales terms. Um, but then the more you go down that line, what then happens to the people who are currently being fed uh, at the other end of the, the chain by, you know, by the likes of Fair Share and other charities? What happens if the chain gets so lean that there won't be this product there? to go to food banks, to go to, to fair share and other charities? What happens to the people who, who are still gonna be struggling just as much? Um, and that's an interesting challenge as well, I think, socially. And it's interesting how much more and more there's press about food waste, isn't there? And I guess the whole um, uh, food poverty issues that we've had on the front pages of the papers over the last couple of months in particular is making this area more and more acute. And as you say, Rod, for these uh, manufacturers, it's a key metric for them, as along with packaging as well and plastic usage and all the rest of it. And I think it's interesting that some of these big processes, as, as we've seen, and manufacturers have dedicated teams now looking at this, whereas 10 years ago that wouldn't have really even existed. So, yeah, and I was really interested by these companies and these startups that are that are working in this space but it's so interesting that actually if the if we're making it too easy then will manufacturers actually waste less in the first place Laura what's your second pick for us my second article this week is from the Guardian it is chocolate sales saw as UK shoppers comfort eat at home amid COVID um, and no surprise here chocolate got my uh, attention instantly anything with gin or chocolate in the headline I'm, I'm uh, normally bringing it to the pick list so I was really intrigued by this and uh, annual spend on chocolate is 50 million up uh, year to date uh, and that's uh, only about 3% um, but what's really interesting in is what we're actually buying so 
unsurprisingly smaller bars that you'd probably be picking up at a convenience store or food to go um, is seeing a decline but sharing bars and multi-packs are significantly increasing and what that's actually resulting in is as a population we're eating more chocolate. Um, multi-packs specifically are up 20% and large chocolate blocks are up 46% um, and it's all around this self-treating at home um, and I really like that the phrase that analysts use in the article about the lipstick effect and it's cheap treats sell well uh, particularly in hard economic times to make us feel good and there's a nice little quote from Jane Goodison um, from Waitrose the confectionery buyer and she says she's seeing an increase in premium chocolate sales as these little treats um, can uplift spirits particularly in times of covid in the article as well, it gave a, a, a nice sneak peek into Hotel Chocolat, who you would think actually have they done really well, but unsurprisingly, they're only 3% up. Uh, and that's because they're more bricks and mortar retail uh, and because they've been closed uh, over the first lockdown and will close again over into our second lockdown in England. They've pivoted online but haven't actually managed to sell more than 3% uh, more. And I've got personal uh, experience of this. They were closed over the Easter period and I wanted to, to send some Easter eggs to my niece in London. I thought, great, I'll use Hotel Chocolat. But to get a, a product was really hard because they'd obviously only had so much selection a lot was sold out to get delivery slots was really hard so and and I think for these businesses any business that's used to being bricks and mortar and to shift online at pace is really tricky and we, we've seen a lot of it so I'm interested to see if this is a, a trend that continues uh, into our second lockdown. It definitely will in my house, I have to admit. Uh, and the article also says 50% of the UK population um, have struggled to manage their weight uh, over the pandemic. And, you know, this whole um, push that we've seen talking about trends for 2021 and we're going to eat healthier, we're going to eat more oranges, we're going to eat more vitamin C, we're going to be super healthy... Boris has got his personal trainer, we're all going to shed the weight and then unsurprisingly we're just all eating massive chocolate bars. What <laughs> is that uh, something that you see in your household Rod and uh, maybe again in some of the, uh, the, the companies that you deal with that you're seeing actually folks are just treating themselves with food that they find comforting? Yeah. Um, okay. So two things to say about this. Um, completely identify with uh, people eating more chocolate in general. Um, I do have to say, but um, but I, I I always kind of I think I like to um, excuse myself by saying the type of chocolate I like is kind of dark chocolate. So there's kind of some sort of health benefit in there. That's <laughs> nice that's try. my that's my alibi. Um, uh, but, but saying that, I think things have got to a point now where even the consumption of dark chocolate is, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it's the health versus just overconsumption is balanced on a knife edge. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you, you do see this with so many foods, don't you? The comfort aspect um, that, that surrounds those foods. And, and on the wider level, we've seen so many uh, reports over this year about obesity and the effects of food consumption, um, particularly in the lockdown scenario where people just aren't getting out and about as much as they did before um, and having um, as much exercise. Um, 
and uh, you know i as someone that covers the industry and all aspects of the industry both you know both the sweet treats and the desserts and the really healthy meals um i i always find myself kind of torn on this really because um i i can completely sympathize with people wanting um you know sweet 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 products be they confectionery be they uh, desserts as a treat um and I don't see anything wrong with that. And, and, and there is this huge kind of emotional kind of value that comes with that. But again, I suppose that's a little bit worrying, isn't it? Because if we're, if there's some sort of emotional, if we're using them as an emotional crutch, um, then, then there is an aspect of almost kind of emotional addiction about them. Uh, and, and where they cross the line and go further than just being treats and become kind of just every day, then, then there's a real challenge there on the part of the consumer and, and a challenge on the part of manufacturers as well. So if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna replace those products with healthier products, those healthier products have to have the same emotional impact. Um, and how do you recreate that both in terms of marketing, but also in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the immediate impact of flavor um, and taste um, and, and, and the kind of the, 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 the physical feel of the product in the mouth um, all, all those sort of things that, that, that a combination of fat and sugar can do so well, you know, how can we do that in a healthier way? And that's one of the biggest challenges that the food industry faces right now. Absolutely. And, and as you say, I think when we are all looking for little bits of comfort, you know, how willing is the consumer as well to stray outside their usual repertoire and try some of these healthier options? Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with health-focused NPD. Because as you say, on the one hand, you would say, you know, these are very health-conscious times. If you are doing something that is, um, you know, health... That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.